Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. In 1972, Martin McNally hijacked a plane that had taken off from Lambert International Airport. He'd been inspired by D.B. Cooper, the mysterious hijacker who parachuted off a plane the year before with $200,000 in ransom money. McNally aimed twice as high, and he got it. He negotiated for half a million dollars in cash. And then at 3 a.m., as the plane hovered somewhere over Indiana, McNally jumped, parachute on, and cash in hand. What happened next was a wild saga, one involving not only a prison break, but two more hijackings, one with an incredibly tragic outcome. The Martin McNally story was the subject of a Riverfront Times cover story by Danny Wissentowski in 2017, and then again in 2018. And now it's the focus of a new 10-part podcast, and it is hosted by Danny Wisentowski. The podcast is called American Skyjacker, and it promises thrills aplenty. It was an ordinary flight from Portland to Seattle turned extraordinary when a man in black registered as D.B. Cooper made a bomb threat. When I first heard about the D.B. Cooper case that changed my life, I considered that's the way to do a score. Just grab a weapon, grab a note, go on a plane, put on a wig, and order all the stuff you need. Parachutes, money, and bail out. So rolling, speeding. So let's start at the beginning. I do remember the fear. It was very scary. They started resting. While they're doing that, the aircraft starts falling out of the sky. We're running at full speed. At any moment here, we could get shot in the back. I jumped on top of him and tried to grab his hands because he had a bomb. Everything was focused on getting out of prison, getting on the land. So he came in my cell and he says, how would you like to leave here in a helicopter? And that is from the new podcast, American Skyjacker. And full disclosure, I was Danny's editor for his coverage of the story at the Riverfront Times, but I have nothing to do with this wonderful podcast. I kind of wish I did. It sounds so great. And joining me today to talk about American Skyjacker is reporter and now podcast host, Danny Wisentowski. Danny, welcome back to the show. It's so great to be here. So, Danny, you've stayed on this story now for years. You've written multiple cover stories. You've now hosted hours of podcasts. What about the saga of Martin McNally is so appealing to you as a journalist? You know, I think it, it kind of hits the, the personal level, the society level, the cultural level. Um, and it just seems to have, uh, it, keeps, it keeps going and going as those who will listen to the podcast will find out just as far as the events uh, between 1972 and 1978. Um, and I will try not to spoil um, a bunch of this story, even though I, I've talked about this on the show before. Um, uh, but it, it begins just in a, in a very personal and human story of someone who is trying to make a, a bigger and better life for themselves. And they take the path of criminality to do that. But that path you know, doesn't just end in writing some bad checks. It ends in the air and it ends in prison and it ends in some of the, just kind of the craziest sequence of events that I, I think I've ever seen as someone who's studied and researched and written about crime. Um, and so it kept being something that um, I felt had narrative 
wait and it had a place to go and I wanted to see where it went. Yeah, there's so many books, the nonfiction books that you read and you think, you know what, this could have been a magazine story. But this is one of these cases where when people read your original story for the RFT, they were like, they wanted so much more. I mean, the story just kept going and going. And right when you'd think it had hit its climax, another huge thing happens. I mean, it just kind of has a little bit of everything. You must have been shocked in the reporting as things just continued to unfold, digging into this history. Yeah, and you can get that sense from the reporters at the time as well. I've, I've interviewed uh, actual reporters who were trying to keep up and covering this. And, um, you know, kind of because this story... Uh, you know, it, it starts in Detroit and then a bunch of it happens in St. Louis at Lambert International Airport. And then, it you know, it it goes between so many different pieces and involves different law enforcement agencies that I've had this experience of, you know, interviewing, a, you know, a flight attendant who was on one of the flights hijacked. But she wants to know all about, you know, a different prison escape and the FBI agents who covered the prison escape. They want to know, you know, what happened, you know, and it's been amazing to be kind of at the nexus of all of these experiences and all of this chaos and to try to put this together in what sometimes feels like a very unwieldy narrative. But when you look at it, there's really one person who rides through all of this and bizarrely, um, you know, comes out on top in a way in the end. And that person is Martin McNally, who is sort of the guidepost of this story. And as you say, I mean, he's such an unlikely guy to come out on top at the end. He's such an unlikely guy to even do this hijacking. Before 1972, he was just a petty crook. And here's how Martin McNally himself recalls those days a half century ago in your podcast. I pulled three stupid arm robberies, $50 here, $80 there, $150 on another day. These were uh, mom and pop stores. And I would go in at 10 o'clock at night or so. I'd go up to the clerk and I'd just tell him uh, I'd like a pack of cigarettes. And uh, when they'd turn around to grab the cigarettes, I'd tell them this is a holdup and uh, all I want is the money and the cash register. So let's get it done. And that's Martin McNally in your new podcast, American Hijack or American Skyjacker. What got him interested in such a major crime as hijacking a commercial airliner? You know, it, it's something as simple as seeing someone else who had done it. <laughs> um, and in this case, uh, it's, you know, when we, you know, before, you know, 9-11, if we were to conjure the image of what a hijacker was, we would think, I think of two, two sorts of people. One is a person who wants to go to Cuba, um, which was a real thing that happened around the time also. But the other one is D.B. Cooper, yeah. who is this mythical, true crime um, you know, almost a god. I mean, you know, if we're living through the age of true crime obsessiveness now, D.B. Cooper would be on the kind of Mount Rushmore uh, of the greatest unsolved, um, incredible crimes that have ever been committed. And this was someone who in 1972 uh, jumped out of a plane in Portland, Oregon, um, and disappeared with more than $200,000. And people have been trying to track that case for decades. But Mac McNally was just a guy in his car listening to the radio in 1972 around Thanksgiving. And he hears this incident and he thinks, this is the way to do it. This is the way to make a lot of money at one time. Did anything in his background suggest that he was somebody who could pull off just the physicality and, you know, the level of detail and planning that you need to parachute from an airliner to land safely? You know, incredibly, there just looking at his background, which we do in the first episode 
of the podcast, almost everything about him, you would think this guy has every reason not to do this. Mm-hmm. He uh, was, you know, dropped out of high school to join the Navy, uh, where he then experienced some extremely traumatic things involving air travel, involving uh, his own people in his own squadron dying and being killed in these airline accidents. Hmm. Um, so he not only did he not have any experience in parachuting, and not only had he never flown a plane, but he actually had a really visceral sense of what air catastrophes do to the human body. Um, and I, you know, he he sees some pretty gruesome things. Um, and when he eventually leaves the the Navy, he has, you know, he starts what what could have been his family. He had a large supportive family in Detroit, a family business he could have joined, but he always wanted the other path. He rejects almost every better life decision that he could have made hmm. until he gets to these um, this plot that he decides to go through with in 1972. Now, one of my favorite details of the story, you may remember this back when I was your editor, I just always thought this was the best detail. And this is the reason he gave for choosing St. Louis as a point of departure for his hijacking. And in the second episode of your podcast now, he describes traveling to St. Louis's Lambert Airport after observing activity at flight hubs all across the country. I walked in, I walked around, I was in there for about 10 minutes. I walked out of the airport. I lit a cigar, a dollar cigar. I lit it up, took a draw. I said to myself, this is it. This is going to work. And that is Martin McNally, an American skyjacker. What made him choose us here in St. Louis? Um, so you know, this is the other part of the story where there's always something more. There's always more information seemingly to describe how such a crazy situation would happen. And part of it was is that this was at a period of time when the idea of installing metal detectors um, to burden air travelers with this sense, th- this invasiveness, <laughs> this lack of luxury, this uh, infringement on their freedom, uh, this was an extreme concern to uh, the airline companies who, you know, didn't want, you know, to validate the fear over hijackings in such a public way, um, but also were worried that that airline travelers just wouldn't stand for it. They hmm. wouldn't go through such, um, you know, even to ask them just to walk through a metal detector was too much to ask them. And so Mac ends up finding that, you know, airports in O'Hare and Indianapolis, um, and even on his trips to St. Louis when he, you know, believes that he's going to take a TWA flight, and then he sees that TWA has installed what they called magnetometers at the time. And so this, you know, what we think is is this very basic uh, idea of security, you know, remember when all you had to do was walk through a metal detector and not have to, you know, take your shoes off or not have to subject yourself to increased security, um, this was just the first step. And so uh, the, the short end of it is that Mac found that American Airlines in St. Louis was the stubborn one, was the airline that was not going to make its passengers give up this golden age idea of airline travel as a luxury and as um, something that wasn't being threatened by criminals and by ideologues at the time. Huh. And so they were holding firm. They were going to let us have our freedom to not walk through uh, these metal detectors. That's why he chose it. And he ended up being able to somewhat successfully hijack this plane. And yet, as your story tells and this podcast, American Skyjacker, tells in such detail, ultimately, he did get caught. Where did he go wrong? 
Right, right. So I, I do, I, I want to, you know, I can give uh, listeners a chance to, you know, tumble down this story themselves. But I, I think, you know, what goes wrong is what has gone wrong in many of the attempts to replicate what D.B. Cooper had done. Um, you know, again, the, the premise, the basic idea is you hijack a plane, the plane lands at your airport, you get the ransom, you give up your hostages, um, you have some kind of rifle or a bomb, the plane goes back up in the air, as long as you have a couple you know, hostages, it's fine, and then you bail out and disappear with the money. Mac was not the only one to try this again. There mm. are several ex- in very interesting times that people tried this. Some of them had experienced parachuting. Some of them managed to get the money and were caught afterward. Some of them were shot on the plane. Um, but a lot of times what we're seeing is that jumping out of an airplane in the back as a way of getting away somewhere is stupendously dangerous. Hmm. And you are putting all, all the weight of Newton's law and everything about gravity and everything about what the human body is capable of doing, you know, from, you know, how long you're in the air to can you land it? There's just such a large amount of things that can go wrong here. Um, and not to get into too much detail, but almost everything goes right for Mac. You know, he survives the jump. His parachute you know, survives as well, even though, again, he has no experience in jumping out of a plane. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of talk after this incident that the speed at which Mac must have left the plane would have killed him. Uh, a lot of reporters said, there's no way this guy survived. He's smeared on the ground somewhere. And in one of my favorite little anecdotes, Mac will eventually try to argue this very point that he could not have done this plan because, look at these reports, anyone who would have done this would be dead. Therefore, it can't be me. This argument did not pan out so well, as listeners will will find out. Um, but I think it's the fact that he's alive today alone is incredible. We're talking to St. Louis-based journalist Danny Wisentowski. He has a new 10-part podcast, American Skyjacker, with new episodes dropping every Tuesday over the next three weeks. There's already three episodes out. Another one drops tomorrow. It's a terrific listen. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Danny. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking with St. Louis journalist Danny Wisentowski about his new podcast. It's called American Skyjacker, and it goes deep on the saga of Martin McNally, who in 1972 hijacked a plane that departed from Lambert International Airport. Now, Danny, we've heard Martin McNally's voice um, earlier on the show, but it's not just Martin who's a source in this podcast. You seem to have tracked down just about everybody involved with this. And one of those people is flight attendant Sharon Matteo. She was a board American Airlines Flight 119 as Max hijacking went down. When we were going through training, very little time was spent on what to do if there was a hijacking. Basically, do as the hijacker said and keep the passengers calm. And I remember that very well when it first happened. I probably said those words out loud. He was in control. And that's flight attendant Sharon Matteo. Danny, you found some amazing people for this, people whose names I imagine would have been hard to come by, much less their contact information. How did you track down, for example, Sharon? 
You know, Sharon uh, amazingly reached out to me. She had read um, the story that came out in Riverfront Times in 2017. And, you know, I think like a lot of people whose lives intersected with this moment, she's been telling people this story, you know, for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that, you know, that, that has followed her. Um, I spoke to another flight attendant um, as well who did not uh, decide to participate in this podcast. But I, I think speaking to them and other sources really gave me a sense of, of the terror that was the result of this moment. Um, the other flight attendant had told me that she still has dreams, um, nightmares about this incident, about mm. all the ways that this could have gone so terribly for her and for the people on that flight. And so I think the fact that we've added the voice of Sharon and other people, um, you know, we get to we get to see some of the repercussions of Max criminal actions. And I think because this, you know, because Mac, um, you know, doesn't shoot anybody, not to give too much away, but we, unlike a lot of podcasts and documentaries, the excavation of this moment does not end in revelations of abuse. It doesn't, we're not, you know, dealing with, um, you know, I think what a lot of the big documentaries are not seeking their teeth into, but it is important to remember that these were not victimless crimes and that the people who survived them, you know, couldn't just laugh it off and walk away. Um, They had to live with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easy to kind of look at this as, wow, this is such a caper. And yeah, to some extent, it is a caper, but there's a real human side to this. And and you do get into this in this podcast. Is it hard to keep people um, wanting good things for Mac when his actions set off just such terrible things in some people's lives? Yeah. You know, I, I think people will get a very, I think, a three dimensional picture of Mac and a sense that he has lived through the repercussions of what he had done um, to a, a very serious degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, when I say that Matt came out on top uh, earlier on, I say that because he survived, uh, just the fact that he's alive. Um, but Matt's life has not been easy, and he has definitely felt um, a lot of pain because of this himself. Um, but I, I do think, though, that in breaking down this story, we do get to see just some incredible moments of people who make decisions that in retrospect seem unbelievable and terrible in some ways. But I think that one part of the reason this story grabs me so much is that we have multiple people who are faced with a moment where they can take their own life and potentially their own fate into their hands if they just take that leap. And they do. Uh, in multiple ways and in ways that I I couldn't spoil at this point. But I think part of what I love about this is that there's so much human agency and as much chaos as exists in this story, as much stuff that happens that people say, I could have never thought of that happening. I We got to talk to the people who made those decisions happen, who were able to show us what was going on in their head and in their lives um, before they made those calls. And it's kind of wonderful that some of these supporting characters or people who just briefly intersect with Martin McNally, and you knew about um, some of them, didn't know about all of them back when you first started writing about this for the Riverfront Times, they had to end up on the cutting room floor. This story was already so long, but the podcast gives you the ability to really go much more deep into how this impacted them. And we learn more about them and their lives. There's so many characters in this thing. It seems like a podcast, the chance to hear their voices is also something that's so cool. Is that part of why you chose a podcast rather than, say, write a book? You know, I think it's a good point. And, you know, when I was writing these stories for print, you know, I had recorded 
all of my interviews with Mac and I would be re-listening to these things over and over and all of the, the voices that everyone who experienced this, their voices were in my head. And so my enjoyment of this, I kind of got to live this podcast mentally in a way. And when I started hearing the clips that, um, you know, my fellow producers on this, Eli Chorus and Joshua Schaefer, put together and just to see the way that it did fit. It was almost like hearing the soundtrack in my own head of putting the story together in words, but hearing it out for everybody else. And I think that is so great. And I think as, as people have already started to hear, the best storyteller of this story is Martin McNally himself and his ability to grasp chronology, to tell a story well, um, minute by minute sometimes through what was in his head what he knew after the trial um you know from the first moment i sat down with him in 2014 to hear him tell me what actually happened i kind of just hoped that people would get a chance to hear him tell this story as well and so the fact that this is actually happening now just feels like the perfect way um for people to i think fall in love with this story in the same way that i have it's interesting. Um, Martin McNally is obviously not an honest person or wasn't an honest person back in the day. His actions speak for themselves. And yet, as he's guided you in this saga, it's been somewhat surprising how how reliable a narrator he's been. It seems like a lot of the things he told you even back in the day, the more you've dug into this, you found supporting evidence for it. Um, this is somebody who you might suspect that he's going to tell you a bunch of tall tales. It seems like, for the most part, his check out. <sighs> You know what? It, it, it is really incredible. You know, when you hear someone as a reporter, hearing someone just tell a story of something that happened to them and it's very detailed and you hear how they felt about it. A lot of times you, you either really can't fact check it or the lens of their perspective is so heavy in the way that story is told uh, that you can only take it as, oh, this is just an oral history of what one person said. And as, as you note with, with Mac, you know, when he goes minute by minute of what happened here and then when the hostages were released here, it's the same in the trial transcripts. It's the same in the news reports that I find, you know, in 1972 and 73, um, since this was a very heavily documented incident. There were multiple, you know, local and national news follow-ups for months. The Post-Dispatch seemed to have dedicated multiple reporters um, in various aspects of this. And, um, you know, that paper in the Globe Democrat at the time. And so... I have to say, I've never found a moment where Mac said, this happened at this point, and then this happened at this point, and I look into a newspaper, or I look into his trial transcripts, or I look into the appeals, you know, hundreds of pages, and he's made something up. He's not made one part of this story up, which is ridiculous <laughs> uh, as you continue to go th through it. Um, and I think it speaks to something that is, is really interesting about Mac, because he is both someone who, who did make a living on defrauding gas stations and all these small little scams. But in his criminal life, this was someone who really did have a kind of code of ethics. But in a perverse way, the code of ethics was his greed. He hmm. was in this crime to make money. He was going to get in that plane to make money. He wasn't going to abuse his power. He wasn't going to aggrandize himself. There is a, a bizarre combination of straightforward humbleness and also the kind of sociopath and the kind of confidence that someone needs to take the lives of other people in their hands because they want to make half a million dollars. And, and so I, I think he does, he is a trustworthy narrator, particularly now as he's looking back on this, 
in his mid-70s. But uh, Mac, as he was uh, in 1972 when he was 28 years old, a bad person, I think. <laughs> it's really hard to, to veer any way uh, beyond that description. He really showed that, that he was willing to violate norms and rules and other people's lives to get what he wanted. A bad person, but a journalist's dream. And Danny, we just have another minute here, but there's something I'd be remiss if I didn't get to this. And this is, you were a longtime staff writer at the Riverfront Times. And right as this podcasting project was sort of coming to a head and taking off, things did get really tough at the Riverfront Times. You were furloughed this spring. You were part of the crew that kept contributing a bit without getting paid, but obviously you also had to, to find a way to make some money here. I understand you have some news on that front. What is happening uh, for you in your personal life or and your professional career. Oh, I'm so, so glad you asked me that. Uh, and it's the short of it is that this Monday I will be uh, officially back as a staff writer at RFT, um, having uh, discussed this uh, over the last couple weeks with uh, current editor-in-chief Doyle Murphy. Um, but you are right, uh, you know, kind of right in, in March and April, I was supposed to be flying out to LA to record the host lines on this. And instead, I was furloughed at RFT, and we ended up recording this uh, right here in St. Louis at Clayton Studios, uh, totally remotely. Uh, and so this has been, you know, over the last few months, all the editing and all of, you know, kind of working on scripts and, and hearing things as they've been produced um, has been uh, difficult. But I can only give you know, credit to uh, Pegola Pictures, Eli Kors, and Joshua Schaefer for, for putting the podcast together, and to Doyle Murphy and the RFT staff, who I, I can't say enough about what they've put together uh, for their Can't Stop, Won't Stop editions um, and being vital and essential, uh, no matter how thin the, the, the print issue may be. Um, and I'm so, so happy to come back and uh, to keep doing uh, what I love doing at RFT. Well, as a reader of the Riverfront Times, I'm so excited that you're going to be back in its pages. You always have the best yarns. And, you know, Martin McNally has consumed so much of your time. Now that you have this 10-part uh, podcast that you're unleashing to the world, it's going to be so exciting to see what you'll do next. And I do want to encourage everybody, um, American Skyjacker, you can get this wherever you get your podcast. We'll link to it on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org. We'll have info about where to get it. And Danny Winstentowski, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's so great to be here again. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.